Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. Today, we're going to have another update on the situation in Israel and its war with Hamas. And we're going to take another look at the militias. There's been some developments over the weekend and some statements by the uh, president of Iran. Today, of course, we're going to be joined by Joe Trusman. He's a research analyst for us here at FDD's Long War Journal. And Benham Ben Talablu, he is a senior fellow at FDD where he focuses on Iran security and political issues. Benham's been a guest here at Generation Jihad several times, and we had him on last week, and we were eager to get him back on after the developments over the weekends. Benham, Joe, welcome back to Generation Jihad. Pleasure. Thank you. Hey, Bill. Nice to be here. All right, let's get started, guys. Before we get into those issues more deeply, Joe, we're going to do what we've been doing. Let's get a quick update. Any significant developments over the weekend in the ground war, well, what we believe to be will be the coming ground war in Gaza. I saw some reports the Israel Defense Force has uh, entered the Gaza Strip in some areas. Palestinians are claiming that the tanks were blocking a key north-south road. Are we looking at more of these shaping operations for a larger offensive, or do we think that this is part of a bigger operation? Again, you know, this is this is the fog of war. We don't have the answers here. We can just give an idea of what we're seeing based on monitoring the situation. Yeah, right, uh, Bill. So like you said, it's fog of war. So I think this is being done on purpose as far as the IDF, uh, sort of what the IDF is doing. Uh, they just want to keep uh, information to themselves, right? Because they don't, they don't want it out there. They don't want to aid the enemy, specifically Hamas and Palestinian armed groups. So. Uh, there's not a lot coming out of the Gaza Strip, but some information, which is important. For example, uh, over the weekend, the last few days, it's uh, the IDF has pushed into Gaza. There are ground forces there. It's not a, from what I've seen, it's not a, you know, there's not tens of thousands of troops on the ground. It's not like that. However, there are, there are troops down on the ground. Uh, being supported uh, by the uh, by the army and the air force, and they are pushing further south uh, into. Uh, they started in northern Gaza, and they're 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 moving slowly south. So it's happening. Not only from, and I know this, not only from statements, of course, but from the from the IDF and the little the the little information that they are publishing. Uh, but also, we're seeing some videos coming out of Gaza that do look credible. Uh, showing the uh, tanks, for example, Israeli tanks uh, in uh, still in the northern Gaza Strip, but you can see, you can tell it that that they're not. It's not all the way in the north. It's it's starting to move south. So uh, that's one thing. There's statements by Palestinian armed groups like Hamas saying that they're fighting Israelis, uh, Israeli troops. So even though a lot of those statements are are for propaganda right or they have this uh, this a uh, uh, a lot of misinformation and again propaganda but there, you can still uh, derive uh data from it and so you get an idea that okay the israelis are likely to be on the ground at uh in this in in this area in the northern gaza strip so 
so yeah, so we've seen that. Uh, that's I think the most significant thing uh, as far as what's happened over the weekend is there are, there are ground forces there in in the Gaza Strip. Uh, so um, and I don't right now again fog of war, not a lot of info going on, not, uh, not a lot of info coming up, but uh, it's it is noteworthy. And of course, the Israelis have published statements that they've been targeting. Um, I guess you could call them mid-level guys uh, within Hamas commanders, uh, uh, people like uh, people of that uh, the, of that equivalent or that have been killed by IDF airstrikes. So, uh, so we've seen a few of those, but nothing nothing more significant than that at the moment. Uh, but the the war continues. Rockets continue to be fired. Uh, on central Israel and Jerusalem earlier today, so uh, so you know Hamas is still is still fighting basically, and there's still a lot to uh, and, and the Israelis still have a lot uh, a lot of work ahead of them. That's for sure. And still, that slow simmer of attacks from Hezbollah and accompanying groups up north as well. Uh, right. Yeah. Exactly. Just like you're saying, it's uh, what they're doing. It's it's a uh, they're keeping it at this threshold, right below a threshold of all out war. That's what that's the strategy right now that, that Hezbollah has. They're attacking IDF positions. Uh, there are some statements already this morning uh, from Hezbollah claiming attacks. The Israelis have also published statements saying that they've attacked uh, Hezbollah, not Hezbollah, uh, cells rather, cells uh, tr- attempting to launch mortars uh, towards Israel from Lebanon. So uh, that's important. And also just a quick note, yesterday, Islamic Jihad, another one of the armed groups, uh, Palestinian armed groups, uh, stated that two of their fighters uh, from Syria were killed in southern Lebanon, trying to uh, attacking the security fence, the the, the uh, statement said that they would clash with the uh, Israeli security or Israeli forces. So two of them killed. So again, we're seeing uh, you could say, let's say, I guess you could say, foreign fighters from other countries uh, that are a part of this, you know, of uh, Palestinian armed groups going to Lebanon and fighting against Israel. So that's, I think, that's something pretty interesting as well. Yeah, just a, that is a, a good reminder that it's not just Hamas, it's not just Hezbollah, yeah, it's others as well. The, the mm-hmm. Hamas is the, the the name everyone recognizes. Hezbollah is the name that they all recognize. Right, um, right. You can I can even say uh, I, there's about a dozen groups. I mean, I'm not going to say or go through every one of them, but uh, you know, there's this like uncommon names. Uh, you know, people. Some people heard of DFLP, PFLP, PFLPGC. There's uh, you know, Alexa Martyrs Brigades. There's others. So those most of those guys are are, are in Gaza. Okay, they are some. Some of them are in southern Lebanon. Some of them are, are in the West Bank. And by the way, there is there was some West Bank activity over the weekend. Um, the Israelis went into Janine. Uh, there was um, a few uh, members of terrorist organizations were killed. Uh, that's something uh, I just forgot to mention. But yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of groups, but yes, the main ones, like you're saying, is, is Hamas and there's Hezbollah and to an extent Islamic Jihad, but there's these other smaller supporting groups. Let's move on to the militias. Over the weekend, the president of Iran issued yet another inflammatory statement. I'm just going to read it, directly quote him. And here it goes, quote, the Zionist regime's crimes have crossed the red lines, which may force everyone to take action. And then he goes on and says, Washington asks us not to do anything, but they keep giving widespread support to Israel. Benham, what red lines and what is his complaint with Washington? 
Well, it's a very good question because the Iranians themselves have been quite adept at not drawing red lines, but a whole series of pink lines. A lot of this reminds me of the Khrushchev faxes or the Khrushchev memos to Kennedy at the Cuban Missile Crisis. Different tones, different strokes for different folks. Uh, you know, if you, you trace the evolution of Iranian commentary in the aftermath of October 7th, you had Khamenei praise the Palestinians, but then say it wasn't us. Uh, you had a whole series of, of folks praise the attack. Uh, who were clerics or, or, or military officials, but again, try not to take credit for it. Then you had this subtle campaign of trying to win the admiration uh, of people who also supported the attack, trying to win the Arab street, if you will, kind of gloating that uh, it is because of Iran that, you know, as the Khamenei said in 2021, uh, rocks in the hands of the Palestinians moved into being rockets. Uh, I'm paraphrasing that quote. Uh, here, uh, the delicate balancing game is based on the Iranians not uh, escalating so much that they lose their most important proxy in that region, which is not Hamas, it's it's Lebanese Hezbollah. And the red line that, uh, or the series of red lines that I think Hamid, uh, that Raisi has tried to draw, as well as Iran's foreign minister who was in the UN recently in New York also tried to draw, is that Israel's military success will require more Iranian and Iranian proxy uh, uh, attacks to be green-lighted. And there, those majority of those attacks will be taking place not against the IDF, but against U.S. forces in the, in the region. And their bid to get America to restrain and constrain the success of the Israeli military response against Hamas and to preserve Hamas. So this is basically a way for the Iranians, just like 73, to pull a page from the Sadat playbook and uh, have uh, diplomacy restrain the Iranians. Remember, uh, Sharon, the tank thrust, had to be called back uh, in 73, despite how far uh, he got into the desert, into Sinai, behind uh, Egyptian lines. And this is an attempt for um, Iran's risk tolerance to prey on America's risk aversion and fears of a wider war and have that semi-spiral in, in a place that the regime can control, out of control, quote-unquote, and have those fears end up uh, either delaying a formal ground invasion or leading to fits and starts of ground invasions or basically the survival uh, of Hamas. Uh, and you're going to see more statements like this. You've already seen it from the foreign minister. You've already seen it from the president. Um, but it's to transfer the blame that follows from the pictures coming out of Israel's military success squarely onto the shoulders of America. Uh, and in essence, this, this is basically a, a, a game changer. Again, I want to go back to the quote from Jake Sullivan a few weeks ago about the region is as quiet as it's ever been. Any quiet in this region is because the regime wants it to. Any violence in this region is because the regime is willing to green light it. Um, and they, they make these threats. And they mean it. It's almost like a, he's gaslighting us, right? I mean, Iran sets this war in motion. We know one of its, however you want to describe Hamas, its proxy, its ally, its client, you know, kicked off a war with Israel. And then Iran's turning around and saying, Washington, it's your fault. Israel, you're crossing red lines. It's it's just quite ironic, is it not? It's It's very ironic. But this is why, the unfortunately, the strategy is so successful. Uh, obviously, if Israel doesn't respond, then there will be more attacks like this, and it is already uh, a, a you know a sharp blow to the military impression uh, that the Israels have uh, historically cultivated, and that has led to the success of deterrence against these groups in the past. But in the case that they do respond, 
they are putting speed bumps uh, in the way of Israeli military success. And again, it's the instrumental use of violence to achieve political ends. This is really the scary part that fits and starts of grotesque violence coupled with political threats, coupled with new violence, coupled with more political threats, leads them to control this cycle. So all the talk in the West about, again, fears of an escalation spiral of this war getting out of control, the Iranians are showing you the exact opposite of how much this can be controlled, of how much of a spigot this is, of how willing they are to fight to the last Palestinian, of how willing they are to absorb our pinprick strikes and then within 12 hours uh, strike again. Uh, th this is a highly gamed out thing. You have to give the devil his due. Uh, you have to give the regime his due. They gambled on knowing the Arab street better than us. They gambled on having learned from 2006 in Lebanon and 2008 and 12 and 14 in Gaza and 2021 and 2022 from PIJ versus Hamas in Gaza as to how the Israelis might respond. And then they played against the steel man of their adversary. Whereas I think with immense respect to those of Washington and Jerusalem, they were red teaming a role playing based on the straw man of their adversary, of the weakest and the most likely, and the regime has absorbed escalation, and therefore it is weak, and therefore it will not green light these kind of things. There is no reason why a non-nuclear power that if you subtract oil has the GDP of a sub-Saharan African country can run circles around us and plan these kinds of operations and met the punishment out over time, even when our allies are being faced with military success in the phase of their operations over time. You know, I might I would add to that that Iran has intimate knowledge of dealing with this problem with the U.S. presence in Iraq. Right? Its militias targeted and killed more than six hundred American troops. It, it they basically sabotaged the U.S. Iraq project. They targeted and killed Iraqi security forces and politicians who were supportive of the U.S. attempts to to build a, a, a friendly Iraqi regime. And so, you know, I I think that the U.S. Israel has conditioned Iran to to conduct this behavior because they've had nothing but positive results over over time. And you mentioned deterrence. Let's uh, let's talk deterrence. Um, over it was actually on October twenty seventh, uh, the U.S. military launched two strikes in Syria against, and they described these as quote narrowly tailored strikes end quote. And they targeted what appear to be weapons depots, uh, two weapons depots used by the IRGC and by that's, of course, the Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the um, their their militias. And then here's what Austin said while trying to look strong. He then follows it up with this. The United States does not seek conflict and has no intention nor desire to engage in further hostilities. And then he goes on and says, but these Iranian-backed attacks against U.S. forces are unacceptable and must stop. Is that the right message that you want to send when you're seeking deterrence, Benham? Honestly, and with immense respect, not at all. Uh, this press release... Well, Benham, uh, I, I'm going to have to stop you right here. After witnessing what I witnessed in Afghanistan, I don't have to give immense respect <laughs> to any u.s official um in in this administration i can be respectful but i say they certainly are not deserving of my immense respect that's just my opinion Understood. you are free to to share yours you know uh 
it maybe it's just the age or the rank or you know i've never served in government i've never seen any combat tour uh and i've never had to make the hard trade-offs of escalating versus not escalating or the luxury of being on, on the outside so i respect the decision i respect the office but you're also pointing to something much bigger than just this which is we've had about two decades of military failure and not really much political accountability which should be, or I'm sure you guys have had, this is a topic of its own podcast with several beverages <laughs> um, to discuss. Yes. But here, <laughs> yes, here, the message that followed, uh, I mean, if you translate it, and I'm being very coy and sassy now and taking a page from your, from, your, from your book, but if you translate that into Persian, you can almost hear the laughter in the background as you, tra- you have to, you have to translate the laugh track as well, which is, this country, which has absorbed at that point, I think it was over between 12 to 16 strikes, depending on how you count, before the U.S. military response. And then you add in the, I think it was New York Times reporting, uh, or maybe Wall Street Journal reporting, which said that uh, it was really only after the cardiac arrest incident, the, the quote-unquote loss oh, of life. Yeah, great point, that, Benham. Uh, you know, the president considered a military option. And that they were uh, actually hiding casualties as well. Or the, I, I heard different things about the number of traumatic brain injuries as well. Right. Um, it was it was only after that. So here, you know, it shows you that the the use of force is is political, and the statement has more to do with the American domestic audience, which rightly, again, as you pointed, after two decades of failed military adventures in the Middle East. Uh, is again risk averse, uh, does not want to beget some conflict spiral that begins World War III. And the messaging that, that the DOD is having to do, and historically against these militias, has had to do on the domestic side, in my view, hurts our foreign policy mission. Consider that as you will. There is no reason why you should not message to a domestic audience. I'm not saying there's not a political trade off, but there is a foreign policy cost to these kinds of things. Not just that you continue to strike in Syria geographically, where the Biden administration has had a lower threshold for the use of force than the Trump administration. Quantitatively, I'll give them that hat tip. Uh, But qualitatively, it's different. Syria is a free fire zone. There is no political cost to firing in Syria. There is no political cost to shooting at storage facilities. You saw this in 2021 in a braggadocious, unnamed, uh, you know, administration source speaking to John Hudson at the Washington Post saying that Biden's threshold for the use of force is lower than President Trump's. Well, you can use force less, but so long as you do it in a domain that the Iranians believe the message is designed to send a signal of resolve. If you're willing to shake the nest in Iraq, well, then maybe you actually give a damn uh, about the outcome. If you're willing to fire at storage depots in the desert, uh, then maybe the Iranians understand that. And those storage depots, as regardless of the fact that they were used, as DOD later said, and weapons came from there, and militias operated from that region, uh, you know, you're 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 pounding, you know, the, the sand with with very expensive missiles. This was a this was a fork in the road that even George W. Bush faced in Afghanistan over two decades ago. So, sorry, long story short, the political message dampened the effect of the military message. The military message was in the wrong geography. It was too quarantined. It was too contained. Uh, it did not show a willingness to escalate. Uh, and beyond that, this breeds not. Res- uh, this doesn't send a signal of resolve. 
This sends a signal of irresolution, which is why within less than 12 hours, you had at least 10 rockets, again, at positions that are affiliated with the U.S. force presence in Syria. Uh, and round and round we go. And some may say that this is actually two adversaries colluding, that adversaries operate beneath each other's thresholds for the use of force, and that they communicate in deed and not in word. And the Iranians don't want to escalate that far, which is partially true. And the Americans don't want to escalate that far, which is definitely true. And their witnessed restraint is actually a net benefit to stability in the region. Because if one is going to have to have displays that are happening, you best make them performative. So Iran, rather than unleash Hezbollah, better that they just shoot some rockets and drones at Americans via proxies. And America, rather than like fully support Israel and, and, and fully get involved in the conflict and fully have stand with the IDF as they first destroy Hamas and then defang Hezbollah, uh, is trying to quarantine off this larger region. So some may say, you do military force performatively, I'll do military force performatively, and we can all live to fight another day. Uh, I don't take solace in that, but I could see some people trying to spin this as, well, it's okay if we restrain because they'll restrain. Whereas the real lesson of the two decades of failure is when you restrain, they double down. Yeah, I loved how you stated that there really is no cost to launching those strikes. I hadn't even considered that, Ben. I mean, you're right. And it made me think of after the attacks on, I believe it was in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998, that President Clinton launched some airstrikes. I believe there were cruise missile strikes and some empty tents in Afghanistan. So, Joe, um, you follow these groups very closely. Do they view Austin's statement as a sign of weakness or a sign of strength? No. I think Benham put it perfectly. This is deterred anyone. So, yeah, I don't, I don't see this as uh, seeing this statement as, um, you know, as, as putting the United States in a, you know, in a in a good position here. So it, it reminded me the strike that the 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 that the U.S. did against this whatever it was a facility or storage facility. It reminded me the first thing I thought about is that it reminded me that the what the Israelis. Uh, would used to do before October seventh, uh, when there was like uh, when there was a rocket attack from Gaza. What they would do, they would send a drone or fighter jet, maybe a helicopter. And they would attack these empty Hamas posts. I mean, when I say a post, I, I don't mean like a building. It's like a shanty, right? So the missile that 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 was used by to destroy the shanty costs much more than the actual <laughs> than the actual target, you know. Uh, so, it, and it, it has no value whatsoever. These are just like, these Hamas posts, observation posts. So, anyway, but they do it just to send uh, a message, at least to um, to 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 Israelis, right? That hey, we did something, right? Even though it technically it has the, the target has really no no value. So, anyway, so and and listen to. We've seen uh, since the attack, since the American uh, response, right? Uh, we've seen, we haven't seen, the, or rather, we continue to see uh, this Islamic resistance uh, in Iraq continue to fire drones and rockets against uh, American positions in Syria. It hasn't stopped. So that tells you everything right there. They don't, they're not deterred at all. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I just go back to what Ben was saying. Uh, I, I, I don't see these militias um, being scared or swayed by Austin's remarks at all. 
Yeah, we're talking about military messaging. I mean, what are we in the Vietnam War here? Is this linebacker two raids and to try to get the North Vietnamese government to stop supporting the Viet Cong? I mean, that worked really well, right? I mean, I, I just I don't get it. Um, but maybe the people in Washington are far smarter than I. But that's quite possible. Or quite likely, actually. So Secretary of Defense Austin had another statement in there. I found this to be extremely ironic. Here's what he said. They are separate and distinct from the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas and do not constitute a shift in our approach to the Israel-Hamas conflict, end quote. They is the strikes that are targeted against the militias in Syria. So he's trying to de-link the U.S. strikes against the IRGC and the militias from the war between Israel and Hamas and company in Gaza, which is, in my opinion, absolutely absurd. These strikes flared up only after the war began. And if you read the propaganda from these militias, Joe, you even had a great video up there where they put a little Palestinian flag on one of the uh, drones. Yeah, right. They're saying the exact opposite thing. And by the way, they're reading this statement. Benham, what's your what's your take on that? Why why is Austin saying this? And does anyone believe it? Well, the, the challenge is sometimes you can get one audience to believe, and in so doing, you'll you'll prevent the other audience from believing. We have exactly that with the messaging uh, in the aftermath of that strike. But I, 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 I'm having a hard time beyond looking at U.S. domestic as to That's why. Exactly where I am, Benham. I I just see this as targeted to us here in the United States. Which I'm, I'm not saying there is no need for them to do it, but when the DOD is having to do that, and yeah. so consistently, and have that have the effect of signaling restraint to an adversary where you're literally using your costliest tool, you're using your military tool uh, against these folks. Uh, and so you, you're, you're watering down the effect of that tool. Sometimes, you, you know, my advice to the, you know, not that they're listening to me, but my advice to the DOD would be in the instances where you want to signal restraint uh you can send a private note but better than better than that don't say anything if you're going to respond in the place that's cheap so you're going to respond in syria and not in iraq and you're going to respond against facilities and not against entities not against people and you're going to feel the need to communicate something to the american audience you can have a good q a with uh, the american audience from the nse podium or from the the, the 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 pentagon podium tell the american people what they need to know they need to know the facts america is not intent on beginning world war three we've had three presidents who've been showing more restraint that's pretty clear uh but to the adversary let the strikes do the talking uh especially if the new biden mo is trying to respond to even failed strikes or uh responding to intercepted strikes because they do have you know, they do. They have had people read important articles uh, by, you know, the likes of Michael Knights, for instance, who is talking about the need to update the number of times you respond. We all have different ideas of how one should respond, but hypothetically, that is a external voice that has also been talking about this. That is not FDD, and we can all concur that there is a really bad response ratio under Trump and under Biden to these militia attacks. So even when someone like that is saying. Uh, you should actually not have to say anything and let the strike do the talking. You know, it would behoove the administration to listen. This is, again, I'm not trying to be political. Uh, I understand the need to message the American public, but that should not 
underwrite, dismiss, or destroy your messaging to the adversary, especially after using this weapon. And again, should there be this need, perhaps don't even put out a press release. Save the commentary for something from the spokesperson from the podium and let the adversary infer what they will from the most important tool, which is the military tool in your toolkit. Now, Benham, I could not agree anymore. I always I say this. Uh, some of you who are my friends, uh, you know, know that this is, you know, sometimes it's best to say nothing. You don't have to comment on anything. And if the Pentagon, if they were going to weigh in on this, my response would have been very curt. Yep, we did it. You want more? We got that. If you don't want more, we can do that, too. This is all on you. And, and that's it. I mean, let keep them thinking, but don't sit here and say, we don't want we don't, you know, but we were forced to do this. And it's almost like, yeah, I agree. This is tailored towards the um, to the domestic audience, which, by the way, is pretty schmarmy and might actually be illegal. But uh, I'm not sure about that. But the DOD conducting a, dare I say, an information operation on the American public just kind of rubs me a little bit the wrong way. But, uh, yeah, just... This this whole this entire press release seems tailored to the U.S., but at the same time, just sounds pandering and weak to Iran. They can't read it on any other way other than weakness here. Joe, you've been following the militias. Do you have a good count on how many strikes there's been? I believe it was Carla Bab from Voice of America said that there's been 23 right at noon today. Um, so she, she put that out at around 1021 this morning. Do you have any any understanding of how many strikes there's been since the U.S. Uh, launched those strikes in Syria? I'm just looking here because I've been trying to. Well, this is the problem, right, Joe? Like, we still don't even <laughs> yeah. know, like trying to sort well, this out, right? Right. Well, it's just like. The issue too is so I these militias they publish a statement right and this is you can see this with other groups as well especially Palestinian groups just because they put out a statement saying oh we did this and we did that doesn't mean it actually happened right but we'll say in this case let's say it it does it did so uh, right before that report uh, the uh, the Iraqi militias as Islamic resistance in Iraq as as they go by. Uh, claimed that they launched rockets at uh, the conical field uh, in Deir or in Syria. So it, that being said, it's either 23 or 24. So I'd say about that. that I think the, that estimate is is right. Uh, so it, that is a lot, especially in the last. I'm assuming this is in the last three weeks. I I, I don't uh, I haven't tracked it before that, just because with with everything else going on. I'm, I'm so busy. So, uh, so I think those that estimate is is correct. So, um, so yeah, we're about and, and it's and it's a lot. And I think we've had one death so far. Uh, a U.S. serviceman or a contractor. I can't re recall. I don't know if you know Bill or Benham, but but yeah, it's it's pretty high. And Joe, um, most of these attacks are being claimed by a group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq and. When they first popped up, I was like, what the hell is this? Who is this? And then I did a little research and they've claimed almost all of these attacks and it wound up you and Caleb Weiss wrote about this group back in 2021. So it's actually the group isn't new like most people. And I even I had almost thought in fairness to me in April 2021, there was this thing called the President Biden's announcement of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. So I might have been a little preoccupied and forgot I read that article that you guys wrote. And we published it at the Long War Journal. 
But um, can you tell us just a little bit about the group? What is, what is their MO? What are they what are they designed for and why are they taking the lead in claiming these attacks? Right. So, yeah, they've been around. I think we wrote about it. Yeah, we did write about it in 2021. And like it was the one year anniversary. Right. Yeah, exactly. So they have, they've been they've been around for, for, yeah, for several years now. And essentially it's this. So the Islamic resistance in, in, in Iraq is is a front group, right? It's a network of, of Iranian proxy groups. So one could say it's uh, and we've talked about it before, I believe. I think it was with you, Benham, where we said that they're, they're basically a proxy of a proxy. Exactly. Yeah, I I love that proxy of the proxy. I I can't tell you how many times I've said that again, repeated that in conversation, uh, Benham. It's it's it might be one of your best of the year. And there's still two months to go. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Top it. It's it's just a yeah, it's just a group a grouping of, of proxy groups. So and but we see these type of front groups not only in Iraq, we see them in uh, in Syria, of course, and then of course in the Gaza and the West Bank. So anyway, yeah, these guys have been around in 2020, 2021. These groups were attacking uh, U.S. bases and uh, American convoys as well. So we were writing a lot about it during that time, but then they kind of we stopped hearing about them, and then now all of a sudden, we're, so there's a lot going on right now. So uh, these basically these this is just, it's just a, a grouping of proxies essentially. So again, like Benham, proxy of a proxy. So uh, so yeah, it shows how powerful these groups are in. Yeah, in the region, right? Especially in Iraq, that they can make proxies of themselves. It's just crazy. Yeah, Benham, how does the proxy of a proxy or a proxy's proxy fit into Iran's larger goals of, um, you know, spreading its message across the region? Well, nothing, nothing sells like success. And when the Islamic Republic has had a, immense success with this model, and proxies are literally being trained by other proxies, you know, these Iraqi Shia militias that are developing their own proxies, as they're already proxies of Iran, were trained by a different proxy, which was Lebanese Hezbollah. You know, again, I mentioned Longwood Journal documented this stuff, 2007-8, the Ali Musa Dakduk stuff we talked about ages ago. Uh, In essence, uh, if a model is successful, it is gonna be replicated in the region. It doesn't matter if it's a Turkish model, Arab model, Israeli model, Iranian model, and, uh, no one is going to claim ownership. No one is going to, you know, copyright this and say no. No one can do it. If, in essence, if you have a partner that is the beneficiary of a successful strategy, they're going to replicate that strategy on a smaller scale, on a smaller jurisdiction, to mask their hand as well. The desire for Iran to not expose itself does not mean that other folks won't use cutouts. It means that once those cutouts get so sufficiently established and so sufficiently armed and trained and equipped and funded. The, the greater they grow, the greater their potential exposure. That's why when I was laughing in the early phases of Iran's PGM operation uh, or PGM provision operation, because first they were trying to build depots and move towards you know more of a conventional uh, military posture. I was like, well, this is going to be the easiest thing for the Israelis to strike. The hardest thing is the trafficking of the assets and the the bringing in the blueprints and the wiring and the control equipment, which can fit in your briefcase or in your luggage. Here, uh, the more successful these proxies become, the more involved in politics they're also becoming, the more involved in the Ministry of Interior and the Parliament they're becoming, the more of an independent political and and kind of militia constituency uh, they have, and they compete with one another. And why take more risks, right? This is essentially all about mitigating risk. Why take more risks? If you can transfer a capability and not pay a political and military price for that capability, 
and transfer the likely, the highly unlikely, but still possible kinetic response against you onto someone else, you absolutely will. And in some of these cases, it's not always someone else. It's literally the same groups firing the thing and then just having a different logo and a different statement. Uh, so it's not like it's a whole different series of personnel. They are simply doing something that could be amended by the State Department and that could be caught by the State Department and the Treasury Department making amendments to existing sanctions lists, adding AKAs uh, for existing uh, sanction targets. And you know, I'm mentioning this also because we have this unique predicament uh, in this region where there are some militias, and I'll stress this again, where the U.S. has struck them since 2021, but has not yet put them on the SDN list. Uh, it, it's interesting that you can meet a legal barrier to shoot at someone, but you can't meet, at a, meet a legal barrier to sanction someone. And this gets to the risk aversion, and do you have a policy that is beyond shooting at empty depots, and do you have a view towards these groups, or is the view just no conflict, no conflict, no conflict, and that will that will constrain U.S. policy in every other space? Yeah, and I'm going to just do a, a quick little rundown on how this all worked. And I'll use Iraq as an example here. So we had the Mahdi Army, right? They were one of Iran's proxies, still are, um, alongside Bader. And, but from the Mahdi Army spawned what the U.S. military first called the special groups or the Mahdi Army special groups. The initial players were Hezbollah brigades, Asib al-Haq, and I'm forgetting someone else, but there were, there were three main ones. And then from those groups, you had groups like Harkat al-Nujaba and the, the KSS and some other groups. And then from these groups, you had little spawned small groups like a Revenge of Muhandis Brigade or something like that. And then all those little groups form the Islamic resistance in Iraq, which it's all being funneled from the same place around supporting it at all levels. And many of these people are just the same people, right? It's just completely incestuous when you look at this. And yet, when people want to talk about Iran didn't conduct this attack on U.S. bases, I need to see a written order signed by Khamenei and with a um, with a video admission and um, and IRGC personnel, you know, directly involved in the operation for it to be an Iranian operation. When we all know what's what's happening in the background. Any thoughts on that, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was an amazing play by play of the past 20 years in the region, uh, and also an interesting play-by-play of how we have been unable to stop it. Um, again, it's, it's a successful strategy uh, that is being replicated. It, why would an adversary like Iran and its proxy network not pass this down to the next generation? As we show, and our, sometimes unfortunately our partners also show, a willingness to keep dividing terrorist groups between military and political groups. Yes. Uh, we we give them these tools to insulate one half of a group from another half of a group. Why would it not be passed down? Um, the adversary has no intent on, on restraining themselves. They have every intent on advancing their strategy as safely as possible. And this human shield, if you will, uh, has been a safe way for them to fire and forget. You know, it's... Um... You hit on it, right? They prey on our desire to disconnect the dots. And I think that's really what this all comes down to. And people see these various layers disconnecting the dots between the Islamic resistance in Iraq, which is, you know, a phony organization 
that spans all the way back to the Mahdi army. I mean, that's really what it, what it boils down to. And um, that's a, that's no way to fight a war. Benham, Joe, do you have any other quick thoughts before we wrap it up here today? Caleb, you know, we've written extensively about these groups, uh, especially in early 2021, that they're just, they're, they're fake. They're, they're actually the established Iraqi groups that we know of, but they're just putting out these, you know, proxy organizations, these names, and um, they're just publishing this stuff, right? Just so they can hide behind it. Essentially, that's what they're doing. So, so yeah, so I think that's what's happening here. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted, I'm just glad we, we, we highlighted that. Keep your eyes on more of these political statements coming out of Tehran. Uh, I think they're going to be increasingly comfortable threatening a wider war. The use of our most important tool did not deter them, did not deter their proxies. Uh, and in essence, uh, they're ready to rinse and repeat. The question is, what will we be doing then? Yeah, the key to deterrence is uh, strength and not restraint. And I would have thought that the Department of Defense and Secretary Austin would understand this. Joe, Benham, thanks again. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for today's episode as well. Just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.